We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contentions. Chapter 7, Section D. The Peace Testimony. Common Misunderstandings. A half century ago, Martin Luther King Jr. observed the tendency of many of those who espoused peace towards shallow self-righteousness, facile thinking, and a subtle belligerence towards those who were thoughtful, sensitive, and conscientious combatants. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story, The Birth of a Successful Nonviolent Resistance, page 81, King wrote, Many pacifists, I felt, failed to see humanity's potential for evil, the complexity of man's social involvement, and the glaring reality of collective evil. All too many had an unwarranted optimism concerning man and leaned unconsciously towards self-righteousness. I came to see the pacifist position not as sinless, but as the lesser evil in the circumstances. I felt then, and I feel now, that the pacifist would have a greater appeal if he did not claim to be free from the moral dilemmas that the Christian non-pacifist confronts. While we may take issue with some aspects of King's analysis, his charges concerning unwarranted optimism and self-righteousness are well worth examining today. The attacks on America on 9-11-2001 have been termed a wake-up call for America and also might well be seen as the same for the Religious Society of Friends, a wake-up call in the case of Friends to re-examine the foundations of its peace witness. Though the U.S. government had warned us over ten years earlier that we were entering an even more dangerous world than the one we had just finished facing during the Cold War, in the absence of worldwide superpower conflict, we found that very difficult to believe. We ignored enemies who declared openly that they intended to bring us massive suffering and death. We dreamed such an event was no longer possible. Even after 9-11, some friends had great difficulty grasping the reality of an enemy with no interest in negotiation and compromise, and enemies whose hatred was dedicated to terror and destruction. And some had even greater difficulty grasping that the 9-11 attack had initiated a new war. One such friend, after 9-11, expressed his total puzzlement over why the media and people in general were talking about a new war. Apparently, he believed a nation's government could ignore the destruction of 3,000 citizens' lives and $100 billion-plus in the national wealth and still survive. Quaker officialdom soon developed a rather problematic slogan for the first decade of the new millennium war. War is not the answer. It only raises the question, then what is the answer? And murmuring peace is not enough. How do we get there? Other friends and non-friends, more partisan and ideological, claimed the essential problem was America itself. This led to them to denounce the government, to blame the victims, 
to make the unhappy, self-righteous accusation of, you had it coming to you. They marginalized themselves in their fellow citizens' minds as insensitive, hateful, even disloyal. However, most friends reacted like so many other thoughtful, fair-minded Americans, with fear, anger, pain, and confusion. One friend spoke in meeting for worship of his horror as they stood on a roof across from New York City on 9-11 and witnessed the atrocity. The ensuing days added to the trauma as his professional associates, well-educated and generally gentle, declared their passionate desire to see the enemy newt. This friend confessed confusion and helplessness, and he was certainly not alone. A religious society whose membership over the last 20 years often declared that its one consistent characteristic was devotion to the peace testimony, found itself suddenly far less certain of and unified in its witness. For many friends today, the peace testimony has largely become a secular partisan movement that supports very worldly agendas, and that is based on the belief that we can control our own destiny. There are four major erroneous points that are often made concerning that witness. The first point is that the peace testimony is the one key testimony that all friends can and should agree upon. A quick survey of friends, past and present, will immediately reveal that many friends did not and still do not embrace this witness. Even many yearly meeting faith and practice books reflect this by blessing both the conscientious objector and the conscientious combatant positions. However, the essential reason that the one key testimony claim is fallacious lies in the fact that the peace testimony is but one part of a larger witness to the active presence and power of Christ Jesus in our lives. That larger witness is a seamless life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. On the other hand, murder, stealing, adultery, covetousness, strife, factions, even drunkenness, all of these sow the seeds of violence and war. The first Quakers recognized this key truth and resisted the tendency to make a list of testimonies from which one could choose the few one felt comfortable in supporting. They recognized only one witness, that one's entire life had to witness in its actions and words to the presence and power of Christ Jesus. The second erroneous point is that the peace testimony recognizes the basic good of human nature and calls it forth. While some might quote scripture out of context, claiming this position rests upon people, quote, seeing our good works and glorifying their Father who is in heaven, unquote, such a position is far less religious than philosophical, a humanistic belief that goodness will flower forth if societies with their unjust mores and governments, their violent, misguided policies, see our human goodness and quiet their repression. Missed by this position is the logical corollary that the goodness of human nature should beget both good societies and good government. Those who believe in the essential goodness of human nature live lives of denial. They refuse to face the genocidal tendencies in the human heart, the evidence of which has been so appallingly present over the last century. The third erroneous point is that the peace testimony is pacifist. 
Still common among 21st century Quakers is the tendency to confuse the original Quaker peace testimony with both the pacifist position espoused by members of other peace churches and certain early 20th century political movements. However, a pacifist position, that is, a quiet, passive non-resistance to evil, was never espoused by original friends. Their position reflected a strong prophetic tradition, a spiritual tradition that required an active, truthful confrontation of evil, not only with love, but also with God's uncompromising demands for righteousness and justice. This position was not based on a naive belief in the power of love, but rather an unshakable faith in God's power. The fourth erroneous point is that the modern Quaker peace testimony does not require any foundation in religious tradition or faith, let alone a Christian foundation. Of all the modern false claims for the peace testimony, this one betrays the sandiest foundation. Such a claim will turn the peace testimony into a plant without root, a plant that will quickly wilt in the heat of injustice, violence, and evil, or be eaten away by subtle arguments for violent defense and armed resistance. The lack of a firm foundation betrayed Quakers during the Vietnam era, when frustration with the seeming slowness of integration and anger over the continued conflict in Southeast Asia led some to suggest that it was time for violent rather than nonviolent resistance. Their optimism concerning nonviolence and the ultimate outcome of the struggle had evaporated. Moreover, as activist social agendas replaced faith as the foundation for the peace testimony, friends embraced more and more highly partisan positions positions that are often part of the problem facing us rather than their solutions. Friends' politics too often drove their practice, and such politics often fostered a blind and brutal self-righteousness little different from the ancient militant God-is-on-our-side arguments. Chapter 7, Section E, Friends' Original Peace Witness No document so ably explains the original Quaker peace testimony as in the 1660 document, which has the rather long title, Declaration from the Harmless Innocent People of God Called Quakers Against All Sedition, Plotters, and Fighters of This World. Unlike our present witness, the peace testimony of the 17th century was not based on an unrealistic version of the world. That declaration addressed a series of questions that might be directed by the world at those who embrace the Christian peace witness, questions that are not explicitly stated in the declaration but are nonetheless answered by it. Here we present some envisioned questions, the answers quoted from George Fox's journal, and the page number where the quotes can be found in the John Nichols edition. Question. Why will you not fight? Answer. We can neither kill men, nor swear for nor against them, because it is contrary to the Spirit of Christ, his doctrine, and the practice of his apostles, even contrary to him for whom we suffer all things and endure all things. Page 401. Friend's response was simple and direct. Christ Jesus has commanded us not to fight and kill. Of all the reasons for supporting the peace testimony, this is its single firm foundation. Even many who support military action and violence under some circumstances 
recognize and honor this as the one true foundation for nonviolent behavior, and they generally respect it and those who truly and sincerely hold to it. Question. But won't you change your mind when the Spirit moves you, when the circumstances change? Answer. We whom the Lord hath called into the obedience of his truth have denied wars and fighting and cannot any more learn them. This is a certain testimony unto the world of the truth in our hearts in this particular, that as God persuadeth every man to believe, so they may receive it. Page 400. Question. But God's commandment not to kill is not absolute, is it? Answer. The Spirit of Christ by which we are guided is not changeable, so as once to commend us from a thing as evil and again move unto it. And we certainly know and testify to the world that the Spirit of Christ, which leads us to all truth, would never move us to fight and war against any man with outward weapons, neither for the kingdom of Christ nor for the kingdoms of this world. Pages 399 to 400. There is a key point here that must not be missed, that God is not changeable. One often hears continuing revelation espoused among friends in support of a number of social agendas that run counter to Scripture and our tradition. That was then, they say, but now a new truth has been revealed to us. Such thinking is both erroneous and dangerous to the very peace testimony contemporary friends embrace. The correct understanding of continuing revelation is that more may be revealed, but it will not conflict with prior revelation, because God is not inconsistent, so as to command us from a thing as evil and again move unto it. If friends deny this logic, then there is no foundation for the peace testimony, for God would be changeable, sometimes commanding us against conflict and other movements moving us to war. Question. Why will you not fight for your own government and own people? To this question of allegiances, friends answered, We are Christ's people first and citizens of the kingdom of God foremost. We are not of it, this unrighteous world, but are heirs of a world in which there is no end, a kingdom where no corruptible thing enters. Question, but are not some wars just, or at least less evil, than the alternative of not fighting? Answer, We know that wars and fightings proceed from the lusts of men, out of which lusts the Lord hath redeemed us, and so out of the occasion of war. The occasion of which war, and war itself, ariseth from lust. All bloody principles and practices we, as to our own particulars, do utterly deny, with all outward wars, strife, and fightings, with outward weapons, for any end, or under any pretense whatsoever, And this is our testimony to the whole world. Page 399. Question. Why embrace this way? What do you hope to gain? Answer. Although we have always suffered and now do more abundantly suffer, yet we know it is for righteousness' sake. For all our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our consciousness, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, which for us is a witness for the convincing of our enemies. Page 401. 
Question. But will you be overwhelmed with the rest of us? Answer. We earnestly desire and wait that the kingdoms of this world may become kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and that he may rule and reign with men by his spirit and truth, that thereby all people, out of all different judgments and professions, may be brought into love and unity with God and one another. Page 400. Question. Will ye resist nothing, even the greatest of evil? To this question, friends answered that they were not pacifist, not non-resistant to evil. They vigorously opposed evil and injustice, but declared, quote, Our weapons are spiritual and not carnal, yet mighty through God to the plucking down of the strongholds of Satan, who is the author of wars, fighting, murders, and plots, unquote. Page 402. In fact, the Declaration itself is part a loving warning for your soul's good, not to wrong the innocent, nor the babes of Christ. Question. But you have not suffered, and you hide behind the protection of others. Unlike many North American and European friends today, the first Quakers had suffered the fires of persecution, unjust imprisonment, and martyrdom. As Fox wrote, We have been counted as sheep for the slaughter, persecuted and despised, beaten, stoned, wounded, stalked, whipped, imprisoned, hauled out of synagogues, cast into dungeons and noisome vaults, where many have died in bonds, shut up from our friends, denied needed sustenance for many days together with other like cruelties. Page 401. Question. What if the ultimate happens? What if you're driven to earth, killed, wiped from the face of the earth? Answer. The cause of all this, our sufferings, is not any evil, but for things related to the worship of our God and in obedience to his requiring of us. For which cause we shall freely give up our bodies as sacrifice, rather than disobey the Lord. For we know, as the Lord hath kept us innocent, so he will plead our cause when there is none on earth to plead it. So we, in obedience unto his truth, do not love our lives unto death, that we may do his will and wrong no man in our generation, but seek the good and peace of all men. Page 401. Question. It seems you're against everything, our government, our values, us. Answer. Our principle is, and our practices have always been, to seek peace and ensue it, and to allow after righteousness and the knowledge of God, seeking the good and welfare, and doing that which tends to the peace of all. Page 399. After studying the Peace Declaration, friends might confess, I'm just a poor Quaker. I could never embrace this when push comes to violence. That confession is a good starting point for a deeper witness, for early friends posited it no easy victory recognizing that indeed they might be driven to earth in spite of their goodwill and nonviolence. They recognized that they could not maintain this witness in their own strength, but needed God's power to do so. Their faith was rooted in an understanding of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, that God's power can be and is manifest even in the face of what seems complete and final death and defeat. If we are truthful, 
Must we not admit our own inability to experience the seeming destruction of all we hold dear? We must admit that we do not have the strength within us to carry through this to the end. Jesus himself confessed in the Garden of Gethsemane how daunted he was by the crucifixion that awaited him. He himself had to seek his Father's power to be obedient and face such a death. A true embrace of the peace testimony must include the real possibility of crucifixion and the ultimate power of God to turn death into resurrection and victory in ways we cannot see. A true embrace must include our need for God's power to remain faithful to our witness. We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contentions. This podcast has presented a portion of the book Traditional Quaker Christianity. The book was assembled and edited by Cherry Wallace, Jack and Susan Smith, and Arthur Burke. It was read by Chip Thomas, and the audio edited by the same. The words for our musical introduction are from Margaret Fell's Letter to the King in 1660. They were arranged and sung by Paulette Meyer. To find out more about Paulette's work, go to paulettemeyer.com. That's Paulette. M-E-I-E-R dot com.